from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. <clears throat> For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. <clears throat> so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I saw an ad for a, a show on Netflix that we were um, kind of considering watching. We just finished binging whatever show we were watching at the time, and we saw this ad for a new program called Love is Blind. And, you know, at first it seemed just like another almost kind of soapy reality dating TV show. And I'll, I didn't have the most gracious husbandly answer when my wife said, would you like to watch this with me? I said, no. Um, I like to think I've grown since then, but uh, she asked again, being persistent and saying, well, you know, what's a scenario where you would want to sit down and actually give this show a chance and watch it? And again, being filled in with graciousness, I said, look, if, if there was nothing else on TV, if we didn't have anything going on or anything to do, I, I guess we could watch this show. Um, I very quickly ate those words, though, because this show came out in late March of 2020. So truly, there was nothing else going on, nothing to do, no sports, no nothing. So we end up giving this show a chance on Netflix. And I'll be honest, um, I actually kind of enjoyed it. It was, it was pretty entertaining. Um, a, little, a little soapy and over the top, but that's TV for you to an extent, right? How this show works, <clears throat> is they'll take 20 strangers, essentially, 10 men and 10 women, and they'll put them into this building. They kind of sequester them for a little bit while they're filming the show, right? In each room, they call it the pod, and it's essentially two living rooms with a wall in the middle. So you can hear the other person clear as day, but you can't see them. You have no idea what the person you're having a conversation with on the other side of the room looks like. You can only hear them enough to have good conversation with them. Obviously, you know what you sound like, but the whole point of the experiment is that people move from pod to pod having these conversations with folks, but never seeing them, and it's to see if they can fall in love with somebody without ever knowing what they look like. Again, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's not how I'd probably go about finding someone to marry, but it's entertaining to watch, to say the least. Um, and it goes on for a couple of days, and about five or so couples will get to see each other because here's the twist. You get to see the person if and only if you propose to them. And the, yeah, there's the kicker, right? <laughs> but they'll have this big dramatic reveal where people will be in this hallway essentially and the curtain flies open, confetti goes off. The, the couples hug each other and say things like, you're even more beautiful than I imagined, you know. Nice stuff, but that's the big reveal and the, then they kind of get on with the show. They'll have a little romantic getaway and they will actually start to meet each other's families and then 
get married if they if they make it that far in the show, and that's even more of the twist, right? Um, <clears throat> and throughout the show, the question they'll say again and again, they say, I wanna know, is love blind? Or I came on the show to figure out if love is really blind. Um, I don't think that people ever go on that show to figure out if, if love is blind, whatever that even means, right? If sight doesn't need to be a part of it. I think there's some that go on the show because they, they want to be famous on social media. But I think most of them go on the show because they're looking and want to find love that is unconditional. And frankly, most of them mention having love that's been had so many strings attached to it and been conditional. They talk about being judged based on how much money they make, how, how important their job is, who their families are, and certainly the way that they look. And I think most of the folks on the show are genuinely looking for a love that's not based on all these things, but it's just a love based on who they are. In other words, they want to find a love that is long, deep, and wide, one that's not conditional like human love. Um, in one hand, th this show is pretty foolish, right? Like, there's a reason we were all chuckling when I was describing the premise of the show. It's kind of a silly basis for a television program. Uh, we actually have a tradition when we would watch it too. We would get either Takis or some kind of one, of one of the flavored Doritos and eat them because just like the show we're watching, it's artificial, it's overproduced, and frankly, it's probably not great for you to consume it all in a, a lot in a quick time period, right? But despite all of these things, I will say the show does exceptionally well in the ratings. Like when this thing comes out, it immediately jumps to the top of the Netflix ratings. There's all these different message boards that people will obsess and talk about the different people and the couples that are on the show that season, all these different fan accounts. I promise I don't run any of those or have any message boards, but uh, people get obsessed with this show. And I, I don't think it's just drama. There's no shortage of dramatic programs on TV that really flop or don't take off and do well. But I think the reason this show does so well consistently is because it taps into a very human desire that each and every one of us, regardless of where we're at in life, feel this, right? It's this desire to be loved when all of our cards are on the table, when all of our warts, bruises, and scrapes, all the things that we really aren't crazy about in ourselves, when those are on display, to still be loved and be told that we're worthy of love. And I think we get to vicariously, and watching this, anyone that watches, you get to vicariously see um, see other people go through that. And I think that's why the show does exceptionally well. Because it is kind of a terrifying question to ask. Will someone still love me when they know everything there is to know about me? I think the um, Netflix producers of this show really tap into the same line in human nature that St. Paul taps into in writing this letter to the Ephesian church. I know that sounds like a stretch at first, but bear with me on this. I think they're tapping into the same thing in human nature there. Um, it taps into the human desire for love, again, despite all of our scrapes and bruises and warts. And Paul, as we know, writes on an as an authority on this unmerited and unearned love of God. We'll talk more on that later. But what he promises his readers in the original audience and us reading it today is a love so strong from God that it entirely transforms us. A love so strong that his, his main and sole prayer in this passage 
is that we would understand his love because just grasping it will change everything for us. Truly, God's love has that much firepower and juice to change things in our lives that just understanding it starts to reorder different things. <clears throat> and uh, enough about talking about reality TV. Actually, jump into the passage, I promise. But Paul starts off the beginning saying, for this reason, and we dip back into what he's talked about before in the previous text. We'll see that he spent a great deal of time talking about the basics of the gospel, right? The good news of Christ and what he, what he calls in there the unsearchable riches of Christ in one phrase. And he spends the passage kind of going through what exactly this means, how he's been commissioned to share this new good news with the Gentiles using the church as a vehicle to do so. <clears throat> and again, the message he's sharing that because of what Christ has accomplished for us, you and I are able to approach the throne of God with confidence. We don't have to with fear. It's important to keep in mind that the folks he was talking to probably worshipped a lot of the Greek gods. And friends, the god that we serve is, is nothing like the Greek gods of old. In fact, if you read through their mythology and anything like that, you'll find these gods were often petty. They were vengeful. They were looking for reasons to be offended. In fact, even approaching them wrong or thinking the wrong way about them could end up in you losing everything just because they got jealous or petty. We don't have to worry about that when we approach God. He's not this vindictive person living on a mountain. And he doesn't have domain or control, I should say, over one small domain. Our God has control over everything and wants to know us and be in a relationship with us. I think that's significant. So keep that in mind. Our God is not the God that, like the gods that the original audience here would have worshipped. He's not just looking for a technicality to get us on when we pray. God fully knows and loves us, enough that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose for each of us. And it's gospel 101, but that truth and sacrifice are important because they're the core reason for our Christian faith and relationship with God. And I think Paul's saying this too because he wants the Ephesian church to feel confident in two reasons. One, sharing the message in their own right, telling folks about who Christ is and inviting them into the same thing that they've got. But... I think he also wants them to feel confident for their prayer, emotional support, even financial support of his mission and what he's done. <clears throat> but when he gets into his main prayer here, again, that text, it's important to pay attention to it. His main text is that all the people reading this and all the saints would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is. He wants them to wrap their minds around how all-encompassing that God's love is. And he actually prays mainly that God would give them the power to be able to understand it. That the main prayer is, I want you to be able to understand how deep and powerful God's love is for you. <clears throat> I'll ask you, have you ever had a, um, I'll call it a paradigm shifting understanding. Have, have any of you ever had that? Where when you understand one central truth, a lot of other small truths that are adjacent start to make sense. And then eventually it even kind of starts to change behaviors that are related to that. Is, is that tracking with everyone? You know what I mean by a paradigm shift? Just something that's so powerful that, oh, because I understand this, these dozen other things make sense. <clears throat> I know um, an example that I've got from my personal life is like all of us. I knew that sleep was an important thing, right? Like it's, it's good to make sure you get enough sleep, whether that's seven, eight, whatever, whatever you need, right? But 
I used to work at another summer camp. And the second half of the summer, I, my last summer there, I was just feeling like perpetually just unwell, like a little off and, and sick and exhausted. And I, I couldn't quite figure out why. Went to the camp nurse. She said, oh, sleep it off, here's some ibuprofen. And that obviously didn't work as a long-term solution. But then I went to a, you know, a doctor outside of there who just really still couldn't figure anything out. And right before the summer, I got an Apple Watch. One of the features you can do on there is track your sleep. Um, after three months of getting the data, it gave me my first report back. It said my sleep quality was poor, and on top of that, I was only sleeping for five hours and one minute a night on average. And that's throughout the week, that's on the weekend, and that's naps in the middle of the day, too. <laughs> so needless to say, it was pretty obvious why I wasn't feeling well in hindsight, right? Um, as a result of that, too, again, talking about a paradigm shift, just understanding, hey, sleep's important, and having that revelation of me not getting nearly enough for a person to get. Eventually, I stopped drinking coffee afternoon on, on most days. Um, started really winding down for bed a little earlier. And I even have an alarm on my phone that goes off at 9.30 that says, all right, it's, it's time to get ready for bed. And I have one that goes off about 25 minutes after that that says, no, seriously, it's time to get up and start going to bed. But what had happened is because of me grasping that one truth of how important sleep was, it changed a lot of other things and even led into behavioral changes that I made. And I think, on a more serious scale, that's what Paul's going for here. Once we start to understand how much God, and when I say how big God's love is, I'm obviously not talking about a physical size, but just how vast his care for us is, how much he cherishes you and I. And once we understand that, then I think things really start to change for us. <clears throat> Again, it changes not just, um, not just the head understanding of, oh, this is what God, how God feels about us, but it really starts to transform us, the way that we view ourselves, the way we view others, what frustrates us, what excites us, even the end goals that we strive for. All that stuff starts to change when we get a grasp of how deeply God cares for us. <clears throat> and, you know, it's not a one-time understanding of God's love where you get some certification of sorts or anything, but it's something that we understand and grow in each and every day as we walk with him. This is actually our uh, theme verse for Wesley Woods, hence why I chose it to preach on this Sunday. Uh, you may notice the word boundless, it's put as the sermon title, it's our theme, but it doesn't actually appear anywhere in the text. Um, what we used for the text this year was actually the, the CEV uh, translation of the Bible. What one of my volunteers likes to jokingly say stands for the close enough version. <laughs> I, tell, I told her that's a little mean, but it is what it is. But having looked at a few translations of the Bible here and what our theme verse is, uh, it becomes clear that Paul's main prayer in the text is this. I want God to give you the ability to understand how deeply he cares for you. And the subtle hint there is that you and I simply can't understand or fully grasp how much God loves and adores us without his help, without divine intervention. We're incapable of understanding how deeply and truly God cares for us. And I think the main reason for that is because, frankly, the love that God, the love that we receive from God doesn't make a ton of human sense. It's not like the love that you and I receive on a, for most of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. 
his love is unconditional. The love that we typically get as humans is unfortunately, I think, highly conditional. <clears throat> I think most of us go through seasons where we wonder in some way or another, will this person still love me if they know X about me? Will people on my team at work still be excited to be on a team with me, even if they know that I, I kind of freaked out a little bit on that person last week and really blew it on this client or sales call that I was on? You might even wonder if you're hanging out with a new couple, like, oh, are they still gonna like and wanna spend time with my wife and I as they start to see our quirks here and that maybe those quirks aren't as funny as they, they might be annoying on some days? Or even wondering, when it comes to kids, am I the kind of person that my kids are going to want to spend time with when I'm older now? Or is there something they're going to resent me for that I don't even realize I'm doing? And I think in some form of this, all of us go through seasons in life where we ask questions like this. Because again, the love that we receive from one another is oftentimes really conditional, unfortunately. It's just part of the human condition. It's love that we can easily forfeit because being known and loved is just not what we're used to. It's not the normal human experience, unfortunately. I actually had a seminary professor who was teaching us on sanctification, on growing closer to God and what it looks like to become more like him as that process unfolds. And he shared that pretty early in his career, he'd have at least one student a semester come into his office. Um, and he'd teach on the topic and someone would come in and essentially they'd just be worried if they could even be a Christian and follow God if, with all the things they'd done, things they'd said, thought, and the things they'd left undone. He said, if I did this and, uh, or keep doing these things, am I really following Jesus? Am I really a Christian here? And he'd listen and assure them as he could. And, you know, sometimes they'd push a little further about like, God's love boundless. I've really done these things. Can God love me? And he'd describe it as his office turning into a confessional almost throughout having these conversations on a pretty regular basis. And when he told us this story, he actually kind of leaned in and said, I'm going to tell you the same thing. I'm going to tell you all and this, the same thing that I told this student. And he, he said it with this just rich, beautiful Southern accent. I'm not going to try to imitate it because I'll probably make him sound like Foghorn Leghorn and I don't want to do that. But he would say with this rich, rich Southern accent that every single one of us has things we're deeply ashamed of, that we regret and are embarrassed by. And he'd tell us, if you knew everything that I did in my life, there's no way you would let me stand up here and teach you about the things of God. There's no way that you would deem me worthy at all to get up here and, and tell you about these things. He'd say, who are you to do those things? And then he'd kind of break his tone a little bit and say, you know, if I knew everything that you all ever thought, did, or said, there's no way I'd deem you worthy to learn about the things of God either and be in my classroom and sit under that. Um, friends, praise God that his love is not fickle like human love, that it's so all-encompassing and powerful that in and of ourselves, we can't even understand it. I would again say that it's incomprehensible and there's biblical basis to say that it's Again, impossible to understand it without divine intervention with God acting towards us first. Think of the tool he's using with St. Paul writing this passage. I mean, the man was responsible for the first Christian martyr there ever was, St. Stephen. He gives the thumbs up to have him killed just for sharing the gospel and the good news of Christ. And if that wasn't enough, he then goes and gets approval from his higher-ups to be able to have go and hunt down and imprison more people just for sharing the good news of Jesus. 
That's the tool and the instrument that God uses to start spreading his gospel all over creation as someone who probably the most opposed person there was at that point in Christian history. That's the person whose heart he turns around with his love and changes so that they can be an instrument for that. <clears throat> um, but speaking of limited love, too, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the, the show I'd mentioned at the very beginning a little bit and how it kind of pales in comparison to God's love. Um, and love that falls short. But it, the show's kind of sad in the ending, too, because there's ten men and women that are desperately hoping for unconditional, for, for boundless love, that someone will see all of their flaws and everything that's wrong with them and will still tell them that they're okay and worthy of love. And very seldom, like, does, does the show actually have a happy ending in these people finding that, unfortunately. It typically goes that five couples get married. Two or three of them will end up getting engaged. <clears throat> And sadly, a lot of them don't actually stay together. One of the reasons that we ended up not watching the show a ton anymore is that the producers will actually put in financial kickers for different tiers to incentivize people. So if they get engaged, they get this much of a cash bonus. If they stay together for a month after the engagement, they get this much of a cash bonus. And believe it or not, there's a different one for if they make it to the altar versus if they get married. There's two different cash bonuses for that. And there's one if they've been together for a year or two. But after that, or even by that point, most of the couples aren't together. And I don't think that solely has to do with the show. I'm, I'm not sure the producers are helping anything there. But I also think that one of the main reasons that that happens is because these people have put so much hope on someone being able, to, again, to look at them for all their bruises, scrapes, and warts and still say, you're okay and worthy of love. And they find out that that love is not unconditional. And a lot of times, too, they find out that the person who's the object of their love, their fiancé or husband or wife, is not perfect themselves either, that they're a really messed up person who's incapable of giving them unconditional love. And their expectations are taken, um, they're just kind of crushed. And it is a sad ending, like I said. It's... One of the reasons we don't watch it a ton is because those they want this perfect love and what they end up getting instead is this love that just leaves a lot of them broken when they do the reunion shows and talk about it thank goodness that our expectations of god's love being perfect and of him being the one giving us the love being perfect too thank goodness that those are never let down that's never not the case with him it never comes up short um Typically, I like to end sermons with some kind of call to action, but I'm not sure we really need one for this. Paul doesn't have one in the text we read from, so I don't know that we need one from there. To whether that's um, sharing the good news of Christ, loving more effectively. Paul's main prayer is just that his church would understand how much God adored them and cherished them, and that his love knew no bounds. Because he understood that everything good that the church can do throughout history, that is a lasting impact for God's kingdom, comes out of an understanding of how much God cares for us. It comes, that's almost the catalyst is the word I'll use. Our understanding of how God loves us actually propels us to do these things. We don't earn that love or anything like that. But we're able to serve God fully when that almost activates and inspires us to do it. Again, God's love is the firepower there. It helps us, um, helps us do that. And 
I, um, I'll kind of wrap up with this quickly here. The same church, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. Um, the church actually has a little bit of a cameo later in scripture, which when I was a kid and reading the Bible, I always thought that was the coolest thing. It would be like when a celebrity comes on a show that you typically watch, it's not on there. They have that guest appearance. You go, oh my gosh, I know them. That's kind of how I felt when the church at Ephesus shows up in the beginning of Revelation there as Christ is talking and addressing the seven churches. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, it, it's not a great cameo that the Ephesian church gets at the beginning of Revelation. They actually get a small reprimand from Christ. And first, he, he praises them. He says, you know, you've undergone relentless persecution and you stayed closer to God. You still stayed close to God even when what the world had seen as the most powerful empire yet was fully against them. They're still able to stay faithful and close to God. They had attacks of people just saying wacky things about the divinity of Christ and really just attacking who God was. Um, things that have been deemed heresy for the last like 1800 years now. But they had people coming in and making those attacks too and they withstood those. And again, they're praised for these two things, handing, handling attacks from without and within. But Jesus says that he has this against them, that they've forsaken their first love. And he tells them to remember the heights from which they've fallen and repent. And the reason I think he says that is because he knew that that love that the church had for him was the only thing that really allowed them to be able to withstand this terrible persecution and to be able to fight well for the doctrine and understanding of who God was. They were only able to do those things because the firm understanding they had about how deeply cherished and loved they were by God. So my, if there is a call to action this week, I think it's just um, that we wouldn't forget how deeply God adores each and every one of us and that that would be the fuel for our spiritual lives. Now, that's something that we can meditate on, that God knows us fully and loved us despite all of our flaws. Amen.